Hey, it's Lance, your host of yesterday's concert. Before we get this episode started, I want to take 25 seconds to tell you about my other show, Jam Journals. Jam Journals is a podcast that takes you on a journey through music history, featuring live performances from some of the most iconic concerts of all time. Each episode recounts a different concert experience through a dramatic narrative that brings the memories to life with vivid detail and emotion. Join us as we take a trip down memory lane of some of the most unforgettable concerts in recent history. Jam Journals is available everywhere you get podcasts. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To challenge oneself is very important. I, I don't know about challenging other people. There's only so far you can go if your whole bent is to incite or challenge other people. I think you'll do that anyway if you challenge yourself in, in a good way, creatively. We spend our lives in this zone. It's what we strive towards, this, and what we like to be and often how we like to see ourselves is this challenging, dark force of nature. But geez, you know, find a body of water, have a Portuguese library, listen to some uh, Flaco Jimenez or something like that. Welcome to Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to Angus Rogers, frontman of Opus Kink. We discuss the role of art in the world, poetry versus songwriting, and the band's latest release, My Eyes, Brother. Grab your earplugs as we unravel artist authenticity and integrity. So I'm here with Angus Rogers, frontman for Opus Kink, killer band. Angus, how are you doing today, man? I'm well. How are you, Lance? I- I'm doing well. Before we started recording, we had quite the the dour conversation about our two countries and the the situations that they're in. But maybe this will be a lively conversation. We'll see where this goes, man. We'll, we'll do our best, yeah. We'll, we will. So as is tradition on the show, we like to start with some icebreakers. Uh, so my first one, it's a lighthearted one. Where's your favorite place to get a pint? Uh, there, there's two favorite places to get a pint. And okay. um, you know, the, the twain do not often meet. The first one is any good Irish bar in London for a pint of Guinness, which is one of life's redeeming features, I think. I agree. Which is the more often attended venue. But then sometimes, depending on where you are, there's a body of water nearby. If it's more than 18 degrees Celsius outside, then it'll be some kind of Portuguese lager by by a river or by the sea. That sounds lovely. You know, and I, I, I juggle them, I can't choose between them. They have their own their own individual magic. That sounds absolutely lovely right now. Like after this is over, we're gonna lift our spirits and we're gonna meet somewhere by the water and have yeah. that pint. Uh, that's what we're gonna do to lift our spirits. Okay. Yeah, uh, no knives and guns. Yes, exactly. So second question. I know uh, I was reading about you guys and I read that Sons of Comet is one of your influences and I got to see them live last year and it was one of the most transcendent shows I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear, what do you think would be a cool song of yours, of Opus Kink, for them to sit in on? What to play on, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, maybe one of the more frantic ones like Wild Bill or um, mm-hmm. or uh, I Love You Baby. I don't know. I mean, we took influence from that whole... When we started this band, that, that was a, a big sounding point, was the London jazz thing. 
And I think it's the kind of the rhythm section interplay and that uh, Sons of Kemet and Ezra Collective and groups like that, they've got a lot of kind of grime or dub influence in the rhythm section rather than like overtly around and about, um, which we liked, you know, and kind of Latin things as well. But yeah, if, if I mean, I say we, I'd love to play with them, but it would just kind of end. It would be overwhelming and then a bit boring because I just can't play like that. <laughs> so I'd rather watch them, or maybe they can do a fucking tribute album to us. That's a better idea. That's they definitely should get on that. They should definitely do a tribute album to you guys. Fucking okay, cowards, slackers. <laughs> uh, so third question. Leonard Cohen, I know you're a fan of his. Uh, what's one of the songs that he wrote that he put out that you would love to steal from his discography and put your name on it? In terms of Opus Kink, I've I always wanted us to do a version of um, First We Take Manhattan or any anything from I'm Your Man. But as me, myself, an incalculable amount of moments or songs that I wish I'd written, and I'm sure I emulate them very badly often enough. But to choose one, I've been listening to Coming Back to You off various positions a lot recently, which is the, the older I get and the more jaded or experienced, depending on which one you want to talk about that day, absolute simplicity and a single emotional, um, just one emotional pass. You know, you don't have to run the full gauntlet of everything and simplicity. But yeah, so many. Like, yeah, that's great. My, my man. Yeah. Uh, so next question. I've heard that you have, I have not been able to see you guys live yet. And we'll talk about that a little later, but uh, I heard you, I've heard you have big front man energy uh, to use a little bit of a slang. Yeah, I what is, uh, in your opinion, what do you think your secret weapon as a front man is? Um, I think any front persons or any physical performers secret arsenal is the happy marriage between desperate desire to be um, perceived and to impress people and also a quick liberty to not really care how that happens um, and to to try a bit of everything, which is not something that I've mastered. But I think those those two uh, those two wolves fucking inside me give rise to well, you know, that that BFE quote that someone said. But yeah, they're not giving a shit and not giving a shit and uh, trying to reconcile those two. But it's just, just having fun and not taking it too seriously. But then again, it's as serious as your life and I'm just going to disclaim myself for the rest of this conversation, clearly. Well, I mean, but that, that, I mean that's interesting though because it is like your art and the, the lyrics that you provide to the music are rather serious. Uh, I mean, they're... I mean, they're they're heavy lyrics. Like when I mean, you really start to digest them, and you're like, "Oh my god, this is this is heavy stuff." And so, I mean, that's what's the balance then of not taking yourself too seriously when you're singing these incredibly heavy words? I mean, you can go very deep on this one because it, it kind of well, let's do it, it. Has its roots in um, more of a life philosophy, which I'm not saying is what our music is, because largely our music is fun and um, experiment in sound and uh, mm -hmm. immunity rather than a, any kind of attempt at a masterwork. But, you know, that Trojan horse of the lyrics being snuck in under a nice patina of 
music or artwork or whatever. It's both as serious and as unserious as as being alive is or as the world is. It depends on how you're thinking on that day or what you've read or, you know, what you've experienced recently. It's it's just music and lyrics are nothing, are dust in the air, but then also that people make lives from them. So there's nowhere to land between that and I'm happy to flip between the two. And there's there's a um, a satisfaction in delivering lyrics that might be unpleasant or slightly more difficult to digest or understand beneath this you know, veneer of pop music. It's a fun, fun idea. Well, so, I mean, do you, when you're writing, are you writing for yourself or is it with the listener in mind? Are you trying to produce something that people will find meaning in or is it just an expression for you to be, to get something off your chest? Maybe neither. Maybe more so that they meaning or lack of meaning becomes apparent afterwards mm. a lot of the time i find or i kind of attach a if someone asks me a year later i'll attach a meaning to them because i've had time to think about it digest my own inane thoughts but um i think i write for myself as a listener rather than myself or the listener you try and write something that you would want to listen to and god knows if i would want to listen to our music if i wasn't in this band um, you'd hope so, but you can never be sure. But for first port of call and energy, whether the words sound good with the music, need something guttural or something pathetic, or and then the lyrics come up after that. But the, and then it's a work in progress, and you might scrap something. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel strangely ill-equipped <laughs> to answer the question, but I'm happy to keep answering them. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like to me, like to you, it's more important to be a vessel for the words. And that you'll find meaning in them later. You'll let the listener find interpret their own like life application to them. I mean, but to me, it just seems like you're more concerned with the artistic perspective of putting pen to paper. Even though I know you type your poetry and things like that. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, it is an it's flexing a, a muscle. It is exercise to pen to paper, finger to keyboard. But it, it, it is it is important to me and to. Lots of people who write lyrics, whether their lyrics appear serious, quote unquote, or not. But it's not something that you can, I found that it's not something you can have a fixed process with, or this is why and when I write lyrics or music or poetry. And I think that unfolding of apparent meaning or the changing of a of the substance of something is is part of the, the allure. So I, I'm sure you've been asked this before, like, what kind of is your writing process then? Are you waiting for lightning to strike or do you seek inspiration? I don't wait for lightning to strike because usually the the final cut of a lyric that will end up on a record is rushed because I've put it off until the last minute and then I need to write it in the studio. Mm-hmm. But it's usually a method of kind of vomit, spewing as much out as possible and then playing with it later. But again, there's I haven't, I couldn't tell you a single uh, way that these things come about because the pace of life changes and the way that you feel about how you do it changes all the time. So it's best not to land on something, I don't think. As long as they come at some point. And sometimes you realise that quick is good or gestation is good, each individual project. So you know, bring on the next miserable, mind-boggling confusion as to how lyrics come about. I'll have that one under my belt. Do you ever, I mean, it seems like you're pretty deadline driven in the sense that like you got to get something done. So you put something out there. 
do you ever look back and think, I wish I had more time with it? Or is it, if I had spent more time with it, I would have ruined what it was because it was so in the moment? Well, both. I think there's things that I'd like to change or I would have done better. Or, you know, live versions of songs that we put out three years ago that are much better now. I also think that there are some songs that we play now that went too far. But fuck it, you know, just put the next thing out. Uh, take take those lessons and make something new of it. Th- yeah, there's there's nothing to be gained in the uh, in the what ifs. I don't think. Well, I mean, I know you have a a book of collected poems, and I was re- in another interview. You were talking about kind of songwriting versus poetry writing, um, mm. and I want you to expand on a statement that you said. You said a good poem doesn't necessarily make a good song. Yeah. Can you can you elaborate on that? A lot of the time. Poetry, I mean, poetry that people sing. Leonard Cohen, again, he, he's done that a few times and put, put poems to music. But even still, he's had to change them, change the register or add some rhyme. I mean, I, I've, you know, I'm happy to stand corrected in the future, but poetry as music, I think it's more the assumption that it will work. People assume, well, if you, if you write lyrics, that's poetry. And if you write poetry, then you're going to be good at writing lyrics. But the most stunning songs that I've ever I love my favorite songs the the gravity of one line and where it's placed or the utter simplicity or repetition which all things that can be utilized in poetry but you know pop music and its sensibilities is a complete different essence to poetry and in the same way your favorite you know you a lot of the time if you read Bob Dylan lyrics you know from those early mid 60s times um you see them on the page and you just think shut the fuck up man you know, it's just this <laughs> kind of it's like reading tarantula his book it's, it's yeah. just get over yourself mate but yeah. then he sings it with that that air that he had or has so they don't always translate but i kind of ate my words after the interview that you're talking about because the time constraints was like shit well i you know i'm exhausted and i can't I can't grasp anything right now, so then I'll go back to a poem and lift a line. So, you know, I'm full of shit, basically. But, I mean, I, you're making it, there is a differentiation between the two that you're talking about, because while you're talking about that, I'm thinking about, like, Jim Morrison when he did that that album of poetry where he just recited poetry and he listened to music, or there was music playing behind him. Yeah. And as a, as a teenager, I was like, oh, this is so heady and deep. And But now as an adult, I'm kind of looking back on it. I'm like, that's really pretentious. Like it is kind of pretentious. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you've got to run that risk, really. And that, that sounds like a poetry record rather than a po- poems as songs. Yeah. Spoke, spoken word over music, which is pretentious. Yeah. Um, but somebody has to do it. And uh, you, you, you lay it out for the world to see and to, to judge. And some people will, do, you know, die on the hill of that record and other people will dismiss it as pretentious dog shite Shit may well in your opinion is it pretentious to say if you're a songwriter to call yourself a poet you can call yourself what you like i think the the label the, the label of poet is not something to be earned hmm. the label of songwriter is not something to be earned as if you if you practice that discipline then that's what you are I think in lots of ways it's empowering to call yourself these things as long as you take it with the, the necessary pinch of salt and don't start getting too lofty about yourself. But, you know, as an affirmation, you know, I, I write songs or I write poems or sins, not tragedies, then then do it. I think we, yeah. all, we all 
to be more. P- people are often very shy or over humble about their how they see themselves as a creative person. Life's too short to not call yourself a, the best harpsichord player in Kuwait or whatever. So I mean, if if somebody like you were saying, if somebody's shy about calling themselves that, you're you're more of the the mindset that if you're producing art you should be sharing it in some fashion. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. To a certain extent, like if you feel like it, then you are whatever that may be. I think it's, it's more, it's, it's bad to gatekeep things mm-hmm. really. Lot, many things are shit and a lot of people are unbearable, but we don't have to set those goalposts up before they've even started being shit and unbearable. Yeah. So just say it loud and proud. If you write poems, you're a poet. If you write songs, you're a songwriter. You know? Well, I mean, going back to the conversation we had before we started recording about just the bleakness of our state of the world, mm. art more art is definitely not going to hurt that. Like, it's definitely not going to push the needle in the wrong direction. I mean, if anything... Uh, it's not necessarily going to help it either, but I think uh, on a uh, personal micro level, it's definitely not going to hurt you individually. So you don't think that more art in the world would be beneficial? I mean, there's, there's so much of everything. When we say more, you know, adding mm-hmm. one more drop to the um, the heaving ocean, I, you know, I, th- I think a call to arms for more art. Because more art now is, that would have meant a different thing 50, 100 years ago. But mm-hmm. more art in the world, you know, there's like deviant art and SoundCloud. And, you mm-hmm. know, there's yeah, you'd have to wade through. You'd be a lot more hard-pressed to pick out the good stuff. But more good art would mm-hmm. be would be great on a on a global level because good or bad doesn't come into it on a personal level, really. On a personal level, for you, is songwriting or poetry writing is that cathartic for you? I mean, is that a way of expressing yourself? It becomes more and more so the longer I do it. I was thinking this earlier. I remember not really feeling like that, and people say, you know, art is my medicine and music is my therapy. I hate to say it, but I used to kind of think fuck off, or which was probably a defense mechanism for me not really understanding that. But also because I had a very happy upbringing and I, you know, very lucky in my early life. So, um, but, but as life goes on, the emptiness reveals itself. It does become, it's more stark. It appears more um, vital to do what I do for myself, which is something I'm enjoying despite being a, a bit of a natural self-satisfied cynic i'm very happy to to feel that these things do me good now and mm. that i've become uh kind of an inalienable part of how i go about my life and there's that that carries that carries with it like we were just talking about i say that and i feel kind of slightly sheepish or embarrassed about it which is the same as someone saying oh i've i write poetry but i don't know whether to call myself a poet but yeah creating things is has now become part of my makeup and I require mm. it. So, and that's just how it is, man. Well, going back to kind of what you said a second ago, what was the reason, what was the defense mechanism that you were popping up? Like, why were you afraid in those early days of producing or letting it be cathartic? I don't think I was afraid. Um, or I didn't know I was, I just, I just thought it was like music was cool or mm-hmm. you know, art was like cool something to do you know i still i held it in high regard 
I kind of was often ignorant to the centrality of it to people's kind of mental health or general balance of their lives. It was it was just another thing that I liked mm-hmm. to do. And it, there, there was an element of, of scorn in how I felt about it, which I'm you know, not proud of, but I was, you know, was a teenager, um, mm-hmm. scornful teenager. But, I, you know, maybe I was afraid, but I think that laxening, is that a fucking word? We can, we, it can be right now. Yeah. Loosening of my uh, defenses can only be a good thing now, I think. Well, what spurred that loosening? Was it just age and maturity? Yeah, I think it's a certain amount of experience and the humility that comes from that and a vague perception of what is worth doing. Just lessons learned from mistakes and realizing what makes you feel good and what makes you feel like a crock of shit, which most things do. So it becomes more, much more apparent the things that, that do make you feel good. The things that spur you onwards, even even a touch. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to go. I want to go back to what you said earlier too. You said you had a fairly happy upbringing, and mm-hmm. you know when I when I read the lyrics, especially, you write some you write some dark stuff, man. You write some heavy stuff, and, and you know I think yeah. there's a lot of beauty in it as well. So where where is that coming from? Where are you tapping into to find that source? It's I don't know. It's always been there. I was a very morbid child the things that i read and the things that i obsessed over like what kind of stuff what what were you into um i was just into a lot of you know like dark when i was young when i was a child you know kind of the darker aspects of fairy tales you know i was always drawn to the witches and the devils and all that kind of thing and then from quite a young age kind of like a morbid fascination with I mean, largely with death, I'm mm. fascinated with that, even before I understood or was actually afraid of it. Yeah, it's kind of like sexy in some way. <laughs> um, and it, it, it terrified me and therefore interested me and, and still does. But yeah, I mean, if there's, there's, no, there's no, no blame to be placed on my family or anything like that, as far as I'm aware, because as I said, my, my upbringing was stellar. I've been very lucky. But uh, despite that, the uh, the dark tide kept lapping, and I'm I'm glad, you know, because then the Brothers Grimm and all of that gave way to Samuel Beckett, and uh, and now today to you know writers like Latessa Moshevi, and I don't know, I think there's underneath the stone, what's under the stone is a is a driving, it's quite an urgent thing in my life. Un- underbelly, not necessarily of society at large, but what's what's on the underbelly of my own mind or my own understanding of life. Question everything, and you know the f- the filth and the worms are. You might as well roll them out into the light. And sometimes it does me dirty, and I feel a bit lost in it. Put myself in that position. So there you go. I mean, do you think it was because you had such? A fortunate upbringing do you think it was a form of rebellion or do you think it was more a search for the realness in life because i mean you know like your song 118 like it's a reference to ecclesiastes 118 or at least you reference in it in the song and yeah. i mean i've i've read the book of ecclesiastes and a lot of what you're saying kind of resonates with that book as well like i mean they yeah you know that kind of the realness of like everything will wither away nothing really matters 
And so, I mean, yeah. which uh, which do you think it was? Was it just kind of the search for realness that you was so sexy and attractive to you? I think it was. I mean, as I said before, with how I thought about art, I think it was maybe it was just an aesthetic. It seemed mm -hmm. attractive, and I was drawn to it. And also the, you know, from ancient uh, pagan cults to Edgar Allan Poe and Alistair Crowley, and then to you know goth and emo. There was there was always a sense of you you know something that other people don't you know to be different to be special and to be kind of uh, misunderstood and feared but in like a, a cool sexy way. I don't, I don't, it doesn't doesn't feel particularly rebellious against my life. I think it's rebellious against in in a base sense rather than a you know a punk sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's rebellious against. Rebellious, rebellion against the 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 norm of uh, things we're fed, you know, which is the most tired concept in the world. But as a as a young adult or as a teenager or even a child, you do if you start to feel that early on, then it becomes part of your uh, misshapen identity, for better or worse. But I mean, is it that the basis of every good art is that it's challenging at least the listener or the observer? It challenges you in some way. I mean, that's. I, in my opinion, music is the highest form of art. And I, I think about all the the things that have challenged the status quo. I mean, look at Elvis. I mean, the way he challenged the status quo revolutionized music and moved it forward. So, I mean, don't you think it's important that we challenge art? I think, yes. And challenging art is a driving force. But I, I, I also love lots of kind of really bad, vacuous pop or country music or pop country mm -hmm. and things like that. And I don't know why, you know, and then these sugar-coated chord progressions. But then I think I like them because it's as a as a breather or a, mm -hmm. a garnish to the yeah. things that challenge you. But yeah, a, to challenge oneself is very important. I, I don't mm -hmm. know about challenging other people. There's only so far you can go if your whole bent is to, you know, incite or challenge other people. I think you'll do that anyway if you challenge yourself in in a good way, creatively. We we do try to do that ourselves, and the the, mu the music that often inspires us and lots of other people is music that seems more daring or more base or with fewer morals, mm -hmm. with a stripping away of things. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the the pop country. I, I don't believe in guilty pleasures necessarily. But I will say that, like Brad Paisley, I don't know if you're familiar with him. A few uh, yeah, I mean, that that to me is like a guilty pleasure because I don't like to admit that I like it. But, yeah. you know, during the summer when it's hot and I can sit by the pool with, a, with like a cold beverage, you know, that's I'm probably going to put on some Brad Paisley. But I think it's almost kind of like you were saying, it's a form of escapism because I do listen to something heavier like Opus Kink where I start digesting the words or I start digesting the value of the art and it challenges me and it, it makes you think. And then yeah, you need some time. Off, man. You can't, yeah. You, you got to refresh. We spend our lives in this zone. It's what we strive towards this and what we like to be. And often how we like to see ourselves is this challenging dark force of nature, but she's, you know, find a body of water. Yeah. Have a Portuguese library, listen to some black uh, or Jimenez or something like that. Well, so I mean, is that, is that like take a song like Mosquito? Is that kind of the basis for adding the funk and the more danceable like aspects to it? Is to I mean I know that's probably just y'all wanted to do something funky, but like does that kind of counteract like we're talking about 
the the heavier lyrics to make it more attractive to the listener, more accessible to you yeah. get the heavy stuff, but you also get the escapism as well. Yeah, totally. From the start or at the start, that was a kind of a base tenet of what we thought we were trying to do, which is mm -hmm. is to have music that's fun and uh, you know music that's let the music be the the sex and the lyrics be the death and the. Uh, mm shame and all of that kind of thing because why not parade these awful things about ourselves or how we feel about the world uh, in a big frilly dress or you know six white boys trying to do james brown or whatever there's a bit more levity to it than that way i mean don't get me wrong i like miserable music with miserable lyrics <laughs> i get it it's largely, largely what i listen to and i write music like that outside of this project but uh yeah that's that's what opus kink is as far as i can gather is the the music is the sex and the, the lyrics are the, the other side of things well it's, i mean i went back and i listened from the first single to your current ep children which will not be your current ep by the time this comes out and i mean you definitely start more on the funky danceable side but it seems like you're leaning more towards like the heavier music especially with the children ep is that kind of just a natural progression of the band i think so with this record this is a heavy record and lots of it's very guitar based, which kind of moved on from a little bit already with the next mm -hmm. batch of things that we're writing. But as as a snapshot of what we were doing, we'd start we'd started to tour more than ever and cut our teeth on the road and things are heavy. Mm -hmm. And we wrote quickly and we had lots of frustrations and desires to get out. So I think that the music suited the time um, but we it's it's not a linear progression you should have heard the shit that we were doing before those first singles you know say that was more kind of jazzy and funky we i mean it's quite well documented but we thought we were going to be a jazz band which when we started this we were like oh we you know we're going to do kind of latin african white boy music and we couldn't do it obviously because <laughs> we are in our relative inability at the instruments so we've just there's some things that have not changed at all and some things that are completely different but yeah i think that this record being heavy is is not really a, a sign that the next one's going to be heavier or the same mm -hmm. it's just what happened at the time you know you're talking about the restraints of pre those early singles what are the restraints now that are keeping you from doing expanding on what you want to do money Mm. record labels where you know we've got this record and a tour and you know hopefully you talk to people but that that side of things slows up and speeds down at will and you know there's there's many dead ends and in many ways you you kind of ignore it if you know what's best for you or rather than ignore it let it occupy a small space in your mind but you know we get called all these lovely things by people when we go on tour and you know grow this thing but still clearly slightly too cold for anyone to pick us up and give us 50 grand to go away and really have time to make a record but we'd make them in any time and with any resources that we could so that's almost neither here nor there line line our pockets industry please hear his plea uh <laughs> so i mean that's you do have a new ep coming out this friday at the time of this recording uh my eyes brother we haven't really talked about it at all so let's just talk about it real quick 
when when did y'all record this? When was this done? We did this in I think it was December in the countryside in Devon and west the west of southwest of England. We recorded very quickly, two days. We recorded everything live. There are a few overdubs, but all the drums and the bass and most of the guitar and the vocals is the second or third take or whatever. We, and we hadn't worked like that before. We, we've had a problem with recording, with not being able to match the live energy. And I think we're a live band mm-hmm. in many regards, but we wanted to become more of a, have our own stamp in the studio. I think, I think again, for the time and how we, what we were trying to do and feeling, I think it's a good representation of that, but it's very raw and very live. And it was mixed and uh, mastered very quickly. I did all the artwork for everything and dashed it out. It's been a very, um, it's not rushed because thing happen, things happen when they're needed to, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a DIY record. It's, it, it feels like so long ago now, as all projects do. And, um, yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing what people think about it. You know, And I think it will be there, as is often the way with us. More established magazines and, you know, all the heads will will be a bit meh about it and then we'll have some blessed uh, amazing journalist doing a blog in Italy or Estonia or something writing a 2000 word essay on why it's the best thing they've ever heard which is what really matters of course it is all that matters but I shouldn't be so cynical because you never know maybe people will love it well I mean if it's anything like your past work it'll be fantastic and I don't say that just to blow air up your skirt but I really do believe that so I mean did you guys come in with the songs done and ready to be recorded there were i think four out of five of them five out of six i can't remember how many are on the record now were pretty much done there was still tweaks done while we played through them on the first day one of the songs which has come out today actually called piping angels that was written completely in the studio from very few vague ideas but before that the songs were written very quickly uh, at the end of last summer because we were told that there were all these big buzzy eyes on us and we needed to get everything out and so we wrote, wrote this record out of nowhere demoed it before we finished anything um, and then suddenly we were in the studio which, which is quite a fun way to work yeah we will be up trying other ways of doing it but um, may we never find a perfect method yeah yeah, it, was, it all happened very quickly, and the, the songs were, um, they hadn't been gestating for very long. So you, there was no like road testing of the songs? Like you didn't perform these songs live to see how they no, were Some of them we played, we played in a, in a tour that we did just before going into the studio, but they were still kind of like, you know, couldn't quite remember all the lyrics, and mm-hmm. they were a bit kind of long and overblown. But you need to do that sometimes to know how a yep. song, all the time, actually. If you play live, then... There's no point doing anything until you've you've tested it at least in a room with each other. I think for our music anyway, it was it was a it was a smash and grab basically. Uh, so as we kind of start to wrap up, I had I had one more icebreaker that I wanted to ask you, and I'm glad I get to wait till the end to ask this one. Oh, yeah. uh, so I, I was in reading about you and reading some interviews with you. I've read that, and I'm not going to ask you the question, but you hate it when people ask you what the meaning of the band name is that in that you've gotten it so frequently that you've just started to make up stories about how the band name came into practice. Yeah. I was wondering, do you have a favorite story that you've told somebody about how the band name came in? I mean, I did 
I did so many. I think there was one particular summer or year that I, I kind of looked at people just in amazement when they would come in with that as the first question. Yeah. Like for starters, it's just like, you clearly have no interest in this. This is like yeah. Alexa, write me some fucking interview questions. <laughs> I think I did, there was, but then also my replies were equally um, overblown and self-satisfied or rather, you know, um, conversely overblown and self-satisfied. I think there was one about, um, because our, our alternative name within ourselves is, you know, when you go to a green room or like a toilet in a venue and everyone's written, and their band name on the walls. Mm-hmm. You get the urge to do that when you've had a few whatevers, but it also makes you slightly cringe. And we just end up writing uh, hopeless cunts on the wall, <laughs> which is kind of like the affectionate colloquial name for this band. And I think that came from when I told someone, smarmily told a poor interviewer that I was uh, in a bordello in Spain or something and playing cards and had a fight and someone called me a hopeless cunt in a thick accent. <laughs> um, but, you know, I kind of probably write those off now because I could just grow up and be polite or just ask the next question, you know. But I did do a fair few. So listeners, they are available out there to um, to peruse. Oh, and they are well worth the read. I mean, that's I was thinking. There was another one you were asked, uh, something about like a memorable live performance or something like that. And you answered, like one of the horny boys was like, out sick or something so you guys constructed a robot to play in his place and then the robot was better than him and he ended up that's, y'all have, that's had... half true that's oh, really? half true. oh we, really we were, we were filming something in a, in a warehouse that we used to rehearse in in brighton and uh our trumpet player at the time couldn't come so we had the, we had the audio recorded already and we were just going to kind of play along to it i don't know what that project was we did lots of those kind of hair-brained ill-advised projects back in the day but he what he couldn't make it so we're like well fuck it we'll just make him <laughs> there was kind of like a the mic stand a hat a broom and a and a trumpet with lots of gaffer tape but it being an inanimate object it wasn't wasn't in fact a better trumpet player yeah but you know there's there's no smoke without fire in every lie there's a seed of truth well, that's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I did, I did love the the finale, the grand finale of that story where it was they had to duke it out, and actually, your your original trumpet player had to prove his worth and beat yeah, the yeah. robot to be back in the band. And yeah, I, some I was, kind of kind of cesarean thumbs yeah. up, thumbs down. Yeah, situation. and now I'm very disappointed to hear that that's only partially true. I'm I'm distraught over this. I mean, there's there's time for that to become totally true. With uh, you know, we could get an AI fucking trumpet player. Very exactly. Short. That's on the the docket for the next. Uh, and an AI singer. Well, while you're at it, that would be easier. It would be, and you wouldn't have to go so much through emotional distress. No, I wouldn't get there. Go through all this hard shit as a singer. Or me, or little no. artist boy. Well, I mean, maybe that's what AI stands for—is like artist interpretation or something like that. Well, yeah, you could think that it's up to interpretation, man. There it is. So, well, Angus, man, it's been a pleasure. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, man. Thank you so much for sharing today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lance Ingram, and this is Yesterday's Concert. Thanks for listening to another episode of my show. For more live music podcasting, check out our other show, Jam Journals. If you're feeling kind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And check us out on all the social media platforms. Email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com or visit our website, yesterdaysconcert.com. So until next time, give us a subscribe, 
tell your friends, and most importantly, take care of your shoes.